Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Selena Verganio, who's a zookeeper at the Franklin Park Zoo. We talked about mission-driven, behind-the-scenes work. We talked about Cleo, the pygmy hippo, and bug farming with hissing cockroaches. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and I am so pleased to have Selena Verganio, a zookeeper, with us today. Uh, full disclosure, I've known uh, Selena since she was a little girl. Uh, I know her parents through our connection with the Yale School of Drama. And um, uh, Selena Bergano is a zookeeper at Zoo New England's Franklin Park Zoo in Boston, Massachusetts. Since kindergarten, Selena has wanted to work with exotic animals. And while pursuing her bachelor's degree in zoo science at Delaware Valley College in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, Selena got her first taste of zookeeping via an internship at Franklin Park Zoo. Uh, so she's been at this a long time. Uh, and uh, Selena, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you so much. So we started with kindergarten, but uh, what's your basic story? How did you get to where you are now? Yeah, so it definitely all started in, in kindergarten, but I can't say, I don't think there was, some people will have this idea of like, oh, you know, I, I met a giraffe and this was like the beginning of the whole story. But for me, it just kind of showed up and Obviously, when you write things down in kindergarten, your parents are likely to say, oh, okay, this was a little bit of a phase or whatever. <laughs> so by the time I hit about 13, my mother realized it was not a phase. And she started looking, you know, how can we help her accomplish this? So we ended up finding the college that I went to on a website. My mother just kind of Googled, you know, what's the best four-year program for zookeeping? And, and luckily, we found DelVal. And once I was there, it was, it's interesting, I feel like in this field, because once you're in this field, you know, a million zookeepers, but prior to entering the field, you don't know any zookeepers. It's just you. You're the only weirdo in the class. So it was funny going to that college because now there were 25 of us who all wanted to do the same thing. So when you say DelVal, that's Delaware Valley College? Yeah, Delaware Valley it was Delaware Valley College when I started, and then they became a university. So Delaware Valley University now in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, little tiny, tiny school. I loved it. And that was where I learned. I met a lot of people who wanted to be just like me, and we got a lot of really good practical experience there. And so you mentioned like, you know, in kindergarten, some people meet a giraffe and then uh, decide, have you ever met a giraffe? I have met a giraffe. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, I think it happens to, to all of us who go into this field. But I came up with this idea in, in maybe the eighth grade that I was going to work with giraffes, having never worked with one in my life. And then I did get to meet one when I was, um, when I was a temp at the Franklin Park Zoo in 2016. I got, to, I got to help work with them. And that was awesome. But also I realized like, oh, you know, I just like animals in general. Giraffe, I don't know where that came from, but I have a lot of giraffe socks now. There was a couple of years where people just, you know, giraffe gifts every year <laughs> but you've moved on beyond giraffes <laughs> yeah 
I've moved on. My my aunt and uncle are like, no more giraffe gifts. We're done. Um. So now, do you have a, a, a like a an issue with giraffes? Or no, you just, uh, no. I still on. like them. I still like them. I just can't live in giraffe spots for the rest of my years. I have to widen my horizons. And so Franklin Park Zoo, where you are now in uh, in Boston, is where you did your internship uh, when you were at uh, Delaware Valley. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Freshman uh, freshman year, I you know freshman year is a lot. So after freshman year, I went home, chilled out. But um, going into sophomore year, the professors were already saying this is a field where you need a lot of experience. The field has changed a lot in the last twenty years or so. It used to be sort of this this field that people fell into. You know, I volunteered on my weekends, and then I ended up working there, or I loved the zoo since I was a kid. And then in high school, I started apprenticing there, but that's not really the case anymore. Now it's very much focused on bachelor's degrees and tons and tons and tons of experience. So my college was always pushing us, you know, you need to look at internships, you need to figure out where where you can gain your real world experience out there in the field. So luckily my grandfather lives here in the Boston area. So it was an easy option because I had somewhere to stay. And I, I got the internship after sophomore year, and I was working in the children's zoo that, that summer. Uh, they keep children in the zoo, or the children get to go visit the animals? <laughs> the children get to go visit the animals, yeah. And, and you've met uh, Western lowland gorillas, I understand. Yes, I know. That department that I work in, we have a troop of five or six. We just had a baby. It, one just had a baby? Yeah, we just had a baby boy a couple of weeks ago. Uh, wow. Uh, a gorilla baby boy. Yes. It's been a big, it's been a big month at the tropical forest. We've had a lot of babies this month. It's been a lot of history made. So how much of the, you know, working, um, in, in, in this zoological field, how much of it is the joy of animals and how much of it is, is mission? What drives you in your work? It's funny because I think people have this perception of zookeeping as this, you know, I'm behind the scenes playing with animals all day. And it is not, that is like the minor part of our day. Obviously, we get to experience the animals and that's the magic that I think keeps people in the field. But the real work is very manual, physical, cleaning, cleaning, cleaning uh, most of the day. And so there. I think that a lot of my coworkers and I agree that our mission is the major reason we're there because this is not, you know, it's not a walk in the park. You're working weekends, you're working holidays, you're working uh, crazy hours, especially with these, um, these high profile bursts that we've been having. It's been a lot of extra hours making sure that these animals are, are doing well. And it's all focused on the fact that the zoo is, you know, we're here for conservation. That's the big the big deal with zoos, again, a big change that I think zoos have gone through over the past 20, 30 years is really making conservation the core of what they do and why they do it. And can you explain that a little bit, the conservation mission? Yeah. So the the role of zoos, again, I feel has changed. And right now it's about these animals as ambassadors to their species. So how do we teach people in the city of Boston to appreciate animals that live? in the Democratic Republic of Congo. You know, like how do we teach a Boston school child to appreciate a Western lowland gorilla? And probably the only exposure that people are gonna have in their life to these animals is through their local zoo or aquarium. So once they're at the zoo, 
how do we turn that experience into more than just a day out with friends and family? It's been interesting to navigate this right now, especially with the pandemic. And obviously we're kind of limited in how much we can interact with the public, but we try to use different means of engagement. And in a normal year, you know, we're doing keeper chats, we're mentoring interns, we're working with schools and programs like that. And then even a lot of people don't know that even the, the money that you pay for admissions into the zoo gets then funneled not only into the care for our animals, but into conservation projects that we work with either worldwide or even in the city of Boston. Am I right that you uh, are doing um, some of the educational presentations by video now? Or Yeah, so during the big closure, so we were closed pretty much from March to June, um, which is it's interesting because people, again, it was closed, but we were all there. All the keepers were there every day because as I always say, the zoo is close to the public, but the animals still live there, right? It's just like taking care of an older person at home. Like you always have to be there for them. Part of the way that we were able to sort of continue this message of we're still here, we're still caring was through this program that we titled Zoo to You. And we ended up doing I think it was every day for a while. Now it's now that the zoo is open again, we've been able to to pull back a little to about once a week. Um, but it was a great opportunity. You know, social media is so influential now. It was a great opportunity for us to take videos of things that were happening at the zoo and help people feel connected, you know, just relate to them that we are still here. We're, we're doing everything that we would do even if you weren't here. And it's it was interesting without having people there to be able to show them kind of things that they wouldn't, See, for example, one of the ones that I ended up making was about um, my bug farm. So we have a lot of animals that eat insects as part of their balanced diet. And one of the projects that I'm in charge of is uh, the bug farm. So I raise the bugs that we end up feeding out to the animals. And that was something that nobody was ever, I'm sure, A, not going to be interested in if they were there in person. I'm not going to like pull out a drawer of worms and, and outshine the gorillas. But um because we had, you know, all this opportunity to show them this whole world that goes on behind the scenes, that was one of the things that I was able to highlight. So tell me, uh, what what, um, what kind of bugs are you farming? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, we ha- we use five, in my building, every area is a little different. So the, the zoo is broken up into different departments, animal departments. So I work in the tropical forest building. We use crickets. We use superworms, mealworms, and waxworms. And superworms and mealworms, I think, are all technically the same kind of like species of worm. One's just like a larger breed, one's a smaller breed. Um, and obviously, these aren't, it's not like earthworms. These are, wor- these are but- like beetles. They'll turn into beetles eventually. So basically, what I do is I, we, you can order them. You can order them for your house. If you have like a a gecko at home in a tank, you can order bugs or you can go to Petco and pick up crickets, things like that. Um, but what we've been trying to do is, is see if we can manage the whole population on our own. It goes a little better in the summer. In the winter, now that it's colder, the worms start like slowing down. So I'm having a, a little crash in my population as we speak. But it's it's so it's so weird. And honestly, when I'm working with them, I'm like, you know, I could really win a, a game of fear factor with this. Like you, crickets are crawling all over you worms are sliding all over your hand, but I love it. I love it. It's just like something like weekly that I, daily that I just get to like take care of and it's totally mine. 
And do you connect with the bugs? Like, do you have a relationship <laughs> with them or? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I always thank them for their service. They obviously end up getting fed out. So they're making the ultimate sacrifice. Um, I think it's just fun to have, you know, they're, they're so small, but they have like this whole little world. Their little drawers are their houses and they have their little egg cartons that they hide out in and they they crawl all over each other. And when you feed them, they run to the piece of sweet potato. So it's just people always think in big picture, right? Of the zoos is like all like tiger, elephant, rhino, but it goes all the way down to the tiniest guys. So I love that part. Yeah, and I mean, among the animals who are featured in the zoo are Madagascar hissing cockroaches, right? Yeah, yeah, yep. We That's part of a routine, just like everybody else. They have to be fed, they have to be cleaned, you have to monitor their temperatures, everything. And so where do they, you know, it, it's weird because they're like, they live there, but then the bugs are being cultivated as food. That's yeah, a little bit of a, a dichotomy. But yeah, no, the the. Madagascar hitching cockroaches, they're actually a really common uh, education animal. I've worked at a couple of zoos that have them as education animals because people are so terrified of bugs for just, and I think that's just lack of education. They don't know how essential those guys are. Those are like the bottom, I, I don't want to call them the bottom rung, but they're like the, the basic decomposers on a forest floor. So it all starts with them. So it's it that and it all that goes back to our mission again is just trying to teach people to appreciate the animal world in in all aspects. And what what can people learn other than science? I mean, of course, science and 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 the basics of the ecosystem. That's one really important set of lessons for people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What else can people learn from the way animals operate? Uh, even down to the level of the bugs and the worms? I think the big thing that we talk about a lot when we were, we talk about trying to get people to, to care for animals and care for the natural world is empathy. That's part of the magic of going to a zoo is being able to see the animals up close and watch them interacting with their environment, watch them interacting with each other and see not only the differences, but also a lot of the similarities of how they run, they live in their world. And so, especially with kids, we try to talk a lot about, you know, how would you feel if you were this animal or how would you feel if you lived in this environment? And I think empathy obviously plays a big role in everything, but especially in this year, 2020, it's something that everybody could use a little more of. And uh, we hope that by coming to visit and even by watching the videos that people learn to appreciate and understand the other more. And, and so where do values and integrity fit in, in the work and, um, you know, not just, I'm interested in, in, in how you see that in relation to the animals and the community, but I also want to hear about, uh, your collegial relationships and the sort of, um, uh, the other zookeepers and, you know, uh, uh who's who in the zoo as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny because one of the things I, I learned very early on, even in, in college, is that zookeeping is very much a culture, just like everything has its culture, like zookeeping has its culture. And obviously learning to navigate that is always interesting. Um, I'm on a team of 12. So we're actually one of the larger departments. And I have been grateful every day since I started working in this department that my coworkers 
have great respect for each other. We have a great group dynamic. And honestly, they are the reason that I love going to work every day. And that, that that's the Tropical Forest Department? Um, yeah, in the Tropical Forest, we just have a, a very good dynamic. And I think this pandemic has really proven that to us, that we really do care for each other. And that because right now, you know, we're still, like I said, we've been working this whole time and we're still working together. We're doing the best we can to, you know, socially distance and obviously following as many rules as we can. But we're in a very tight building and we have to share a lot of space and we have to work together a lot, especially with all these um, these births that we've been having have been huge team efforts. So what I've really learned to appreciate over the past two and a half years working with this team, but also especially in the past six months, is I trust them not only with obviously we trust each other because we all manage the same animals and have to take care of the same animals, but we have to trust each other in terms of as people. You have to trust that your coworker has your back in more ways than one, not only in safety, but also right now that they're following the rules and that they're making sure that they're not putting your health in danger. It's yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. A lot of people, but miraculously all get along very well. Yeah. And, 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 um, so what is that like? I mean, what, do you collaborate? Uh, like, is there a team taking care of the Madagascar hissing cockroaches and a team taking care of the lowland gorillas? Or uh, do you, you know, sort of get assigned your animals? What, what, what's the collaboration look like? Yeah, so the way it works specifically at Zoo New England, um, every zoo runs it a little differently. I've worked at a couple institutions. The majority of what I've seen is is similar to this is that so you're within your department, right? At my building, it's Tropical Forest. At other zoos, it could be like the carnivore team, the the reptile team. Um, and then within those teams, you have a set of animals that are under your care. And then they sort of, they being, I don't know, the higher powers, whoever, you know, some of these things get decided long before I arrived at the zoo. But the animals within our department sort of get broken up into different, what we would call routines. So... Sometimes it's just based on like, okay, these three exhibits are right next to each other. So it makes sense that one keeper is going to work on those three exhibits today. But uh, the tropical forest is broken up into these little chunks that we call routines or some zoos call them strings. And then the way it works in my building is that we are the whole team of 12. All of us will eventually be trained. And I say eventually because, you know, there's turnover um, so people have to be trained kind of at staggering uh, intervals. But eventually all of us would be trained to take care of all the animals within our building. And then the schedule for the week is released, let's say on Friday for the next week. And so I might be working Sunday, Monday with the gorillas. Uh, Tuesday, I might be on the lemur routine, which includes the cockroaches and uh, one of our macaws. And then I have my days off and then Friday, Saturday, I come back and I might be working with the tapers that day. So especially in this dynamic, I think, because we do so much uh, switching around, you really have to trust each other because you end up following somebody else, right? So if I'm on taper on Friday, somebody else will have been on it on Wednesday, Thursday. And again, talking about empathy, you have to be aware of, all right, well, if there's a staff meeting on Friday, maybe the person on Thursday does a little bit of extra work so that on Friday, the person has it a little easier and can get things done faster. Or, oh, uh, this area ran out of trash bags. This is like a, the one of the big things. My area ran out of trash bags. 
I'm going to be the person who's going to replace the trash bags before I leave so that the person who's following me the next day doesn't have to, you know, take the extra five steps to go get them. And it seems so trivial, but those things can really, when you're, you know, cruising through a day, those things really make or break, uh, break your hours. So. And, and, and in that case, you're sort of taking care of each other, right? Uh, you're, exactly. You're, uh, uh, going the extra mile for each other. You're um, uh, aware that you're serving each other. Right. And, and obviously, it all comes back to the animals in the end, right? You're making it easier for your coworker, but you're also allowing them by doing these little things more time to focus on the things that really matter. So like really giving it the extra clean or, or maybe you've given them five to 10 extra minutes that they can now use to do some training program. That's like, that's a huge deal, especially in these days where, you know, time gets tight. It's a, it's a lot, especially right now. Like I said, we have a lot of special cases with all these babies and it takes up a lot of extra time, not in a bad way, but if you can buy someone an extra five, 10 minutes that they can then use to do something that will help increase the animal's welfare, like that's a, that's a huge deal. That's a gift. That's part of building trust with each other. Mm -hmm, definitely. And so who do you like better, the animals or the people? <laughs> uh, I always say I like the animals, but I love the people, right? Like I, and I think that comes from, like I said, this is a big culture. Uh, and some people like animals have always been their number one passion and maybe it's personal, but I, I love the animals, but I also, I know what I would do if I didn't, if zoos fell off the face of the earth tomorrow, I have a sense of like, okay, where would I go? What would I do? Uh, some people dedicate their whole lives to this field. There are keepers who have been in this. This is one of these fields that has those people who have been there like 30 years and they've raised animals from like babyhood to to their death. Um, I think that people can make or break the situation. The animals are, of course, the magic of the place, but the people are the ones you have to interact with. And people always think that zoos are built around the animals, which they are, but zoos are also for people, right? Like we're here for the guests, talking about that mission again. We're here to engage them in these animals' lives in conservation of the animals. So Something uh, something that I think happens in this field is that I remember this in college a lot. People saying like, you know, I just want to work with the animals. I just want to work with the animals. And the professor stressing like, you need to have the skill set to be able to interact with people and relate to people, or this field is not for you because it is equally about both of those groups. Yeah, and and so do, and you, you agree with that? I completely agree with that. Yeah. What is it that draws you to um, see someone as a, a coworker whom you would be more likely to emulate? Like, what is it that you admire uh, about some coworkers or, 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 or what is it that you try to do and how you conduct yourself um, to build trust and confidence uh, with, with the other people? Uh, answering the first part of that, like, who do I want to emulate? Like I said, there are people who have been in this field for many, many years, and I work with a couple who have been in the field for you know, 10, 15, which at that point is the majority of their life. It's usually a, a younger profession just because it's so physically draining. You know, you get to a point where your body gives out very early. So, But I think of, I always think of this one example where there's obviously, um, just like with any you know, field, there's hierarchy in terms of, you know, you have your curators, you have your assistant curators, you have your lead keepers, but you can obviously 
in any profession show a lot of leadership without the title. And I think of this one example where we had, so a lot of people don't know that the animals have their habitat exhibit space where the public sees them. And then pretty much every night they will go off exhibit into a behind the scenes space um, where they spend the night. And that's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, the, the main reason is we have to be able to clean. So there has to be somewhere else where they can go when we clean in the morning. Um, and also it's good to have this sort of sense of like, you know, you know, the animal is able to move between two spaces. That's like really important just to be able to manage their health. So we had a hippo. We still have this hippo. And she was on exhibit, Cleopatra. Just to be clear, this is a hippopotamus named Cleopatra. Yeah, this hippopotamus, pygmy hippo. So she's a tropical forest animal. Yeah, she's a resident of the tropical forest. Cleopatra the hippopotamus, yeah. And she was on her exhibit, and we called her in. We opened the door from the exhibit, and we called her in. Most people don't know this. Also, we do not go in with our animals. You know, these are big animals dangerous animals. We want to give them space. We have the respect that, you know, we're not in charge of them. They make the choice whether to come in and out. And usually they make the choice that we appreciate. Sometimes they don't. This is one of those nights where Cleo was like, absolutely not. I'm going to sleep out here. And a hippo is like not someone you have a <laughs> argument with no. and win, right? I mean, right. And, and she's a pygmy, so she's smaller, but she's still got ginormous teeth, right? Like we are not going to win a battle with this animal. She's a pygmy hippo named Cleopatra. <laughs> okay. Yes. And how much does a pygmy hippo weigh? They're they're much smaller than the ones that you're like the big ones that you're imagining. But they've still got ginormous okay, but I mean ballpark. Uh, ballpark. Oh, um I would say ooh, like 300 400 pounds. Could be totally wrong. Okay. So so a tiny hippo is still like a pretty big animal and, oh, and, and, and you're focusing on the teeth. So it sounds like the teeth are a big feature of Cleo. Yeah. She's got huge tusks, huge tusks, and they don't mess around. So she's out on exhibit. She's passed out in her bed, very peacefully sleeping, but we need her to come in. The way that the exhibit is designed, it's not really optimal if the animal stays out on exhibit like we need her to come in so that we can be able to clean it in the morning there's uh she shares the exhibit with a vulture who gets fed after she comes off exhibit so like we need her to come out so we can feed him we need her to come out so we can clean the pool for the next day we need her to come off she doesn't want to come so we all start you know whoever's there what happens is obviously say one person is on the routine so i don't remember who was on it that day let's just say it was me I'm calling her, Cleo, Cleo, calling her at the door. I have her food bucket. I'm shaking it. I'm doing all the basics that they teach you. Like, you know, if your animal doesn't come in, try this. I've done all those things, not working. So eventually my other coworkers have finished up their day. They start filtering in and everybody's helping me. Oh, did you try this? Did you try getting this special food from the fridge? She loves this. Did you try going out? front and calling her name, all these different options. Everybody's brainstorming to the max and we just can't get her off. She's not, she's not even awake at this point. She's totally asleep. So one of my coworkers who had been there 15 years goes, okay, it's at this point, it's now like down to the wire. Like we're supposed to have punched out maybe 10 minutes ago. We need to get this animal off exhibit. One of my coworkers comes in Uh, And she says, I have an idea. I'm not sure it's going to work, but it's something that we used to do as part of her training program. 
So all the animals uh, are assigned trainers that then teach them through operant conditioning, uh, different behaviors that allow us to just like better care for them. So like open your mouth so we can see your teeth, present your tail so that we can draw blood. Like these are things that we work for months and months to get them to do. By the way, there've got to be lessons there for dealing with people, but we'll get back to that. <laughs> oh yes, oh yeah. So this coworker of mine remembered this cue, which is what we call it, um, that they had trained Cleopatra a long time ago. I don't remember exactly why they had trained it to her, but the cue was they would blow a whistle and then they would touch the water. And she was trained. I don't know exactly what, because I wasn't there. I don't remember what exactly this was trained for, but it was something that had been not phased out, but just, it was no longer part of her training program. It was no longer that important. So my coworker goes around to the front of the exhibit. She brings the whistle. She blows the whistle twice. She gently taps the water with a pool skimmer and bam, the hippo's up. She goes inside. She's off exhibit in the next five minutes. And that moment, that very long-winded story, rem- I, like that moment, I was like, I want to be this coworker. Like, I want to have this amazing institutional knowledge that goes beyond like what is in the moment, right? Everybody was coming up with all these solutions that were working right then, but she had so much knowledge of this animal from years previous that they immediately allowed her to like see through all this noise that everybody's like, what do we do? You know, people are at this point, we've decided, but she's not coming off. We just have to figure out a different way. We can, you know, we'll, we'll figure out the vulture. We'll figure out this. We'll figure out that we're coming up with all these other solutions because we've to work around Cleo's insistence on not, uh, uh, cooperate. Exactly. Right. There was so much going on, so much brainstorming. And this coworker just saw like straight through it all, back 15 years to what this animal had responded to. What's so great about this story, uh, Selena, is that number one, you have this coworker with 13 years of, of wisdom and, and knowledge and skill and institutional memory. That's one thing that's great about it. Of right. course, another thing that's great about this story is this, you know, the teamwork that everyone's trying to like, persuade the the the, the hippopotamus <laughs> to go inside and what but i have to tell you my favorite part of this is that cleo remembered that cue i know well and that is just that just speaks to like the brilliance of animals right and i think that is the the key of this story is that the animals are so much smarter than even us the professionals give them credit for sometimes like they have so much knowledge and understanding of their world and it's up to us to figure it out so in talking about what do i want to emulate at least in that coworker, is being able to to see through it all and see like you know understand that these animals are so so brilliant and and, and so so the coworker said you know i have an idea and and so was it it was the teamwork right and it was the institutional memory uh, it was the the insight to use this um, this best practice, this repeatable solution uh, from from days gone by. Um, what is it about that story that um, that really uh, that really impressed? What is it about that experience that impressed you so much? It was just th- this coworker that I'm thinking of in particular just has so much respect and knowledge for the animals, and that's something that I want to strive towards, right? Like I've only been in this field for, I've been in the field for about six years at this point, but I've only been working in this department for two and a half. 
And when I see examples of that, of just such like excellence without even needing the title, right? Like this was not our curator. This was not our vice president. This was just a member of the staff who loves animals, respects animals, and has spent the past 13 years just learning everything she can by watching them. I was like, I can only hope to be like her someday. Yeah, that's 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 a fantastic story, um, and uh, uh, and was everyone sort of dazzled? <laughs> I was dazzled. I was like, "What?" But of course, you know, my other this was pretty early on. This was, I think, within the first year that I was working back in the tropical forest, and everybody else was like, "Yeah, that's her. She knows. She knows the animals." Like, and so it also has set me up for in the in the years following that is like now I know that that's a person that if I I'm at a roadblock where I can't figure my way through a, an animal situation. Like that keeper is someone that I can always go to who will teach me the the easier way or the better way to do it. She has answers. She's worked through these problems before. Yeah. And I love that it's not just the expertise and the institutional memory or the wisdom, but uh, that you connect that to her respect for the animals. Right. Oh, definitely. Definitely. That's a great story. Um, so let me ask another question. Um, so what what do you do to um, try to make sure you're that kind of person with your colleagues? One of the skills that I think is most important in this field and many fields is observation. So in terms of the technical point of it, as a zookeeper, you need really good observation skills when you're working with animals, right? Especially if you're working with them up close, you need to be able to watch their bodies and make, you know, read their body language. Um, but also just read the signs they're giving you every day. Animals are really good at hiding if they're ill. That's what they're built to do, especially if you're a prey animal. If you start limping one day out on the plains, like you're going to be the first one down and eaten. Is that, is that right? That's fascinating. Yeah. So they're very so, good. So in other words, it's 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 maladaptive to show weakness. Exactly. Exactly. Because you're going to be the first one caught if you go if you go slow, if you limp, if you're feeling tired and don't get up with the rest of the group. Like the lions will be right there at your front door. Yeah, that's so interesting. I wonder if that's true for people that that. Uh, or or if that's why some people are so careful about not showing weakness. It seems possible. So observation in terms of being a zookeeper, like you have to watch for the smallest, smallest things to to know that an animal is not doing well. So in terms of the technical skill, that's very important. But I think that observation is also a very important soft skill to have in any career. And so for me, um, working in this team of 12, I spent probably the first eight months, and it's an interesting dynamic that I'm in because I was right after graduation in 2016, I was a temp in this building for six months. So I had, when I came back, so the story is I was a temp. Uh, they filled the position, which was a, a leadership position. So I wasn't qualified for it. I was just sort of filling the deck so that they would have a full staff until they hired this, um, this staff member. So I didn't get the full-time position. I ended up working in daycare for six months. And then I went away and I worked at the Houston Zoo for a year before a position opened up again in the tropical forest. And I came back because I'm originally from this area. So, you know, it was much better to be home. 
Uh, so during that first six months of that temp job, I was lucky because I had those six months, right, where there was no, it wasn't likely that I was going to move up. So it wasn't like I needed to, you know, be crazy or prove anything. So I was just able to watch and like watch the dynamic of these people. And by doing that, I think by being sort of quiet and observant at the beginning of a new experience, I think you give yourself the opportunity to understand the people that you're working with better. And not only just understand them as individuals, but understand how they interact with each other. And personally, I feel like that allows me to figure out, okay, I know my skill set. I know what I'm good at. I know what I like. How do I make the things that I'm good at and the things I like fit into this dynamic in a way that I can be useful to these coworkers, like I can be a part of this team. So that's really a very high order uh, uh, relational technique, um, understanding and appreciating context, uh, reading the social dynamic, uh, seeing who's who and where they fit in relation to each other, and then, uh, and then trying to make yourself valuable in that context, right? Yeah, and I think it's also, I understand my personality enough to know that like, I know sometimes I can be very outgoing and very loud, but I can equally pull back. So you have to, I think you have to match what people are giving you, right? Like certain coworkers, they're there to work. They don't want to be playing around. They don't, they just want to, they just want to work. They just want to do their job. So with those people, obviously I'm not going to try to be striking up friendships or chit chatting over lunch. Like you want to give those people the space to if they want to talk to you, then they talk to you. But then you also can observe, all right, well, this person is a little more outgoing and silly. And I think I would be a, a good match for them. Like I'm going to turn up that piece of my personality a little bit more. And I think in a big team, uh, it's, it's nice to be able to adjust yourself to the people that you're with. I think personally, I know now being in this team that I appreciate that when people kind of read me and, and they know how to, they know what I want from them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really what you're describing is uh, is 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 being an adaptable uh, person and adapting in real time to context. Um, I mean, it's interesting because zoology has to teach you a lot about adaptive behavior in the animal world, right? Oh we're, yeah, we're just kind of like you know, goofy animals, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And even working with animals, you have to be very adaptable. Obviously, you never know what they're going to do. We call it a routine. But I think honestly, that word is not appropriate, because nothing about the day to day at the zoo is routine. Yes, you're working with the same individuals. And yes, you're working in the same spaces. But there is always something different happening, which is why I love the field, which is why a lot of people love the field, because every day is so different. Um, and the adaptability, if you don't have it, you're not going to make it. I think there's a, a, a way to really be truly authentic, but also be respectful of others. And, you know, so that uh, it's not it's not inauthentic to um you know, bring out one part of yourself as opposed to another um, in, an, in, in, in relation to the context, um, you know, you, you can have different parts of you that are equally authentic uh, and that are, you know, more or less appropriate depending on context. I think that's a very, 
you know, that's a, that's a, that's a really uh, super valuable uh, set of uh, skills to have. Definitely. Um, and um, are some of the animals more adaptive than others? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, they can be very routine. Some of them, you know, you change one small thing and it can really throw them off because they're just, they're used to a certain set of ways. Others are much more flexible. Um, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Primates in general are very sensitive, right? Because they're like us, they're very social um, and they are very observant. They read cues very easily. So we as keepers have to expose them to things that allows them to be more flexible. Um, and whether that's in the form of changing where they sleep or giving them different enrichment items that make them think differently or expose them to different sensations. Yeah. Primates are, primates are funny. I never thought I would work with primates. And now the building that I'm in is, is the primate section at tropical, uh, at Franklin park. So. Uh, it, does it affect how you deal with people? And like, has do you feel like you've gotten better and better at dealing with people as a result of getting better at dealing with uh, uh, other primates? It, it is funny to see, you know, you see people do things, and you're like, oh, I saw that at work yesterday. <laughs> you mean I saw that at work um, yesterday? Like, oh yeah, a gorilla did that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's all very uh, transferable. Everything goes back and forth. But it's also funny working in this setting because you see when guests come in watching them interact with the with the animals is also very eye-opening because obviously we know these animals as individuals like up close so it's funny to watch guests make assumptions about them or or um just the way they people are very funny the way they interact with animals and around animals and, 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 and so you could easily be like, oh, you don't get it. Cleo's just like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think that that's a lot of um, where sort of this misconception, people come in all the time at every institution I've ever worked at and say, oh, the animals are like, where are the animals? Why aren't they doing anything? And they're there at, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon. Uh and the animals are are resting. You know, they've had their whole morning is done. They've eaten breakfast. They've done all their foraging. And now they're taking a break, just like you would like to do uh, if you were at home. You know, you eat your breakfast and then you do your morning exercise and then you go watch some TV in the afternoon. Take a rest. Yeah. Or, or, or you're having your recreation here at the zoo. You want them working? Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. No, oh, that's funny. Um, so, so let me, all right. So, so somebody's hearing this and they're saying, wow, this is so cool. And, um, uh, and, and of course, you know, um, uh, how do you get to be a zookeeper? That's, that's a long, that's a long story, but how do you get to be somebody as, um, sensitive and tuned in and, uh, somebody like you how, do, how if somebody's hearing this and they, maybe they don't want to be a zookeeper but they want to be the selena Burganio of whatever they do uh, how does somebody get to be like you i think the key thing that i have learned and i'm still learning is that it's very important not to pigeonhole yourself into one idea of yourself um i think a lot about 
when I was in college because where I went to college was very interesting because they had us, we were always, we came in with majors declared. Like there were very, 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 very few undecided people because the school is so focused on this sort of, this idea of experiential learning and and hands-on experience. You come in ready to go. And I think a lot of people, me included, you it's weird because freshman year is supposed to be this big year of, you know, exploration and your first time out of the house and and what do I want to do with my life? And something that I learned there is that even though I wanted to be a zookeeper and I had this clear goal in my head, it was okay, even in that setting where everything was so sort of fixed, to look around the bigger picture of myself and find different things that made me interesting within this field of zookeepers, right? Like we're all zookeepers in this field, but what makes you different? So for me personally, it was sort of the theater background. So my family has always been involved in theater. Like you said, my mother works at the Yale School of Drama. And that was something that I had grown up with that was really deeply ingrained in me. And it was something that a lot of not a lot of people, because there are a lot of theater fans in the world, including in the zoo field. But it was something that really helped me to, it was something that I could identify with that wasn't just zookeeping. And it also allowed for this really interesting sort of cross section that has then followed me through my career, where I'm good at performing. I like doing public presentations. I like presenting to school groups when they come on grounds. I like um, doing educational theater. Like if I had my dream job in the whole world, it would be just doing theater shows based on animals at the zoo every day for students. And it's also given me thought in terms of things that I can do. If I ever do leave zookeeping, like there are so many options in the world. So I guess the crux of this point is just to allow yourself to explore all the sort of elements of who you are and not worry about focusing. I wanted to be a zookeeper since kindergarten, but at this point, it's not like I'm not disappointing anybody, including myself, if I start to go in a different direction. And also within this world of zookeeping, you know, we're saying zookeeping, but it's really the world of zoos. There are so many different ways that you can activate that part of your life without necessarily doing just like the one thing that you've had in your mind since kindergarten. Yeah. And what, you know, what sets you apart, what makes you uh, special, what you bring to the table. Uh, and, um, and, 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 uh, and so the fact that you can perform, I, I, I'm guessing that, that uh, that's also one of the, one of the reasons you're so good at reading people and animals apparently. Yeah. 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 You spend a lot of time in an audience trying to pick up what emotions are being projected out to you. You eventually get good at it, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, uh, well that, I think that's excellent advice. And, uh, if, if you were to give one piece of advice, is that what it would be? Yeah. I think going back to that same word of like adaptability and, and flexibility, it's good for everybody, not just the animals, not just the people. It's good for everybody around you too. Excellent. Uh, that is excellent advice. Selena Burganio, um, zookeeper extraordinaire, human being extraordinaire. Uh, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you for having me. In our next episode, I'll talk with Fernando Gonzalez, CEO at Coru, a partner at QED Investors, 
my dear friend and cousin. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.